today's scripture reading. Mark 5, 21 through 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little, da my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came back to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion, when people were crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this time, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. You may be seated. Would you pray with me real fast? Jesus, thank you for the moment that we have today. It's a moment to hear your story, to be invited into communion with you through worship and the table and prayer. Because we have these experiences and as we like savor this moment and as we just enter in together, would it be a place of rest for us? Would it be a place where we know your presence is near and as a good parent or a good friend is near in the moment of difficulty and darkness, would we know it will be okay? Because we are safe in you. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. It's good to have you. My name is Johnny Morrison. I am one of the pastors here, if you're new. It's so good to have you. I want to start us off here um, by telling you something that I think is really spooky. Uh, <laughs> it 
spooky. Yeah, it's very spooky. I think this is very spooky. Uh, we don't know. We don't know how general anesthesia works. We don't know. This is not a joke. We don't know how it works. You go to the doctors. They put you under. They don't know how. They wake you up. They still don't know how that works. They say it's like a wave in your brain, and then the wave just stops happening. Like if you go to a stadium and you see a wave in a stadium, if it just stopped happening, they're like, that's how general anesthesia works, which is not comforting to me. We don't know. We don't know how it works. We know that certain receptors are shut off in your brain, but beyond that, we don't understand what's happening in your brain. We don't know where you go when you are anesthetized, which is spooky. We don't know how it works. If you're an anesthesiologist, you're a dark magician, not a doctor. <laughs> They love that. I was listening to a sleep expert generally, and they were saying that just like general anesthesia, we actually don't know that much about sleep generally. Like we, this whole process is very mysterious to us: where you go, why it happens, and the reason for that is it's very difficult to study sleep because you're sleeping. Right? It's difficult to do the kinds of scientific studies required to get information. We can map brains, we can do EKGs, we can study certain rhythms and what happens in your body. But there's a lot of things about sleep that we don't understand, that we don't quite comprehend, and we don't know what is happening. And I think that's very interesting, because we do sleep all the time. We do, do sleep. We do sleep all the time. The things that we know about sleep, for sure, is that we need it. We all know that we need sleep. That your body requires sleep for recovery. We know that your muscles require it. That your brain requires sleep for recovery. And another thing that we know pretty concretely is that there's certain things in life that make sleep very difficult. We know that the more anxious you are, the more difficult sleep becomes. We know that more that you try to control what is happening around you, the more difficult sleep becomes, and that's true when you are just trying to sleep, and that's also true when you're having surgery and you are using anesthesia. The more you try to control it, the more it makes it a difficult process. Who would have thought there was such a connection between rest and control? We are in a series right now entitled "Brother Sister." And in this series, we are exploring what we're referring to as our spiritual attachment to God. That language of attachment might be familiar to you. It comes from the world of attachment science, which studies how we connect and relate to one another. And in the same way that we connect and relate to one another in distinct and unique and different kinds of ways, we're also discovering that we relate to God in ways that are distinct, unique. Sometimes the ways that we relate to God come from a deep security and sense of groundedness, and we all know that sometimes we relate to God in ways that feel insecure. Whether that's full of shame or full of anxiety, or whether it's out of emotions that have been shoved down and hidden away from spaces and conversations with God, we have different ways of relating, different styles of connecting to God, and throughout this series, we are trying to create opportunities. For all of us, whether you feel secure in your relationship or whether you feel insecure, we're trying to create opportunities for all of us 
to grow in our sense of secure attachment to God. I think about it like this. I am married. I feel very happy about the state of my marriage. Uh, I like being married. But that does not mean there's not more room for us to continue growing in connection with one another. It's always new opportunities to continue to share, new opportunities to grow in connection. So in the same way, we're having a conversation about how do we grow in our sense of secure attachment to God. And to do this, we're looking at stories of Jesus connecting with people throughout the gospel narrative. So the very first week that we were gathered through this series, we looked at the story of Nicodemus, who sneaks away one evening, away from all of the religious leaders and the establishment and the academy to find Jesus in the dark, and he finds that Jesus is ready to meet with him. And then last week, we talked about the Samaritan woman at the well who is often felt unseen, but in this conversation with Jesus is known and seen in loving curiosity. And today, continuing our conversation by looking at the story of Jairus from Mark chapter 5, and what happens when anxiety shapes connection. What happens when anxiety and panic begins to define our connection and our relationships. We meet Jairus in Mark chapter 5, the text that was read for us so beautifully today. And we're actually going to break this story into two parts. This week, we're going to talk about Jairus. And then next week, we'll talk about the woman in the middle of the story who interrupts the whole scene. And we're introduced to Jairus right at the beginning, and he is referred to as a synagogue leader. To be a synagogue leader would mean that you're an important figure in Jewish society. It would be like uh, you served as the executive director of an important nonprofit. You're not necessarily a religious leader, but you lead in religious spaces at high levels. So you direct the finances of a large nonprofit. You oversee the logistics of an important nonprofit. And it's a nonprofit that sits at the center of communal life for exiled Jews who are far removed from Jerusalem. So he's an important figure. Well-respected, well-thought-of, probably wealthy. But he comes to Jesus with urgent and heartbreaking news. In verse 23, Jairus comes to Jesus and he says this, Sir, my daughter is about to die. Please come and place your hands on her so that she can be healed and live. And so to Jairus' great relief, Jesus gets up from that moment and begins to go with Jairus to his daughter, to heal his daughter. You can only imagine what Jairus is feeling in this moment. You probably come to Jesus with a deep amount of anxiety, fear, frustration, right? You're hoping that something might happen, but you don't know that Jesus will respond. You don't know what the answer is. And then you get Jesus, and there's probably a moment of relief as you urgently begin to head back to your house. And so they urgently begin to move back to Jairus' home, And as they go, we see in the story that a great crowd begins to gather around them. Jesus is pretty famous at this moment, so a lot of people are coming out to see Jesus. And so a huge crowd begins to gather around, and someone in that crowd, who we'll talk about next week, reaches out and touches Jesus. And Jesus stops. The text says this, at that very moment, Jesus recognized that power had gone out of him, and he turned around and in the crowd said, Who touched my clothes? This moment reads to me like if we were watching a movie. 
Like I just pictured Jairus and Jesus are walking down the streets and they have this like deep sense of urgency and Jairus has this deep sense of need and this deep sense of like anxiety. And he feels probably hope for the first time as he has Jesus, like the great healer in tow. And they are beginning to move. And we know that his daughter is close to death because in this story, she dies. So it's, he knows she's on the line. So the urgency must be so intense. And they're walking towards this house. And then all of a sudden, you're moving and you look back and Jesus is no longer moving. He's stopped. And is trying to look through a large crowd of people for who touched him. And it's a large enough crowd that disciples tell Jesus, like, you're not going to find the person who you are looking for. I don't know exactly what Jairus was feeling in this moment, but I know exactly what I would be feeling in this moment. Panic and anxiety. I can feel it just as I read the story, like it begin to well up in me as you see Jesus stop moving and your probably hope of healing is delayed. Anxiety is the feeling we get when we're afraid we're going to lose something. It's that feeling we get when we're afraid something is going to be lost, something is going to go missing, something is going to be out of reach. So in this moment for Jairus, this loss is real and substantial. It's its daughter's life and the life that the family is supposed to have together. But you can feel anxiety for all kinds of reasons. I feel anxiety if I sleep in too long in the morning and feel like I can't get the rest of my day done because you feel like you're losing time. Right? Anxiety is just that simple feeling, profound and yet simple of losing something or feeling like you're about to lose something. The Christian therapist Crispin Mayfield has this really great analogy. He compares anxiety to the feeling you have when you're a kid and you're given a balloon. I thought about getting a balloon for this illustration, and I was like, nope, my, my ADHD is too bad to hold on to a balloon a whole service. <laughs> so I'm just going to illustrate it to you with miming skills. Um, Crispin Mayfield describes it as a, a kid with a balloon, and the balloon is a thing that you want, right? Like the balloon illustrates a thing that you desire, a thing that you long for. But if you ever had a balloon as a kid or been with a kid who has a balloon, you know like the kind of urgency and anxiety they have around like to hold the balloon and the look to make sure it's like still there. They'll grip it really tight. If it goes like too high, they'll like re-grip it and almost lose it in the process. And even if you tie it around your wrist, you're still worried and you're still conscious and you're still thinking about the balloon the whole time. Anxiety is kind of like that. You have a thing that you want, a thing that you desire, a thing that is probably really good, and you are worried about losing it. So you grip it, and you hold tight to it, and you have these skills and these tools that you use in order to hold that balloon together, in order to keep things together. That feeling of loss, that feeling of anxiety, it's not wrong to feel. The thing that is tricky about anxiety is what it can do in us and do to our bodies and do to our mind. For so many of us, the experiences of anxiety that we have are real, and they come from real places. So in this story, Jairus has an experience that is rightfully anxiety-inducing. His daughter's life is on the line. If you don't experience anxiety at that moment, like, what is going on? 
So it's a legitimate experience that begins to produce anxiety in you. But there is something that happens to our bodies and something that happens to our minds when we live with anxiety for a long time. It can begin to reshape the way that we think, and it can begin to reshape our imagination. It can begin to reshape our habits and our practices and the ways that we interact and the skills that we use and the way that we think about the world around us. If anxiety is a fear of losing that comes from something real, it can begin to shape in us an imagination that all things might be lost. You might call it a scarcity imagination that anything could be lost, that all things could be lost. And so I have to do something, I have to grip that balloon in order to hold on to the things that matter the most to me. I've got to make sure I don't lose it. I've got to make sure that I don't lose these things. See, anxiety can reshape our thinking to see all of life out of a lens of anxiety. If you've ever worked for a job that was highly critical, you may have had this experience. You work in an environment that is highly critical, and you learn certain skills to adapt to that environment, right? Maybe you got really good at seeing details. Because you're like, I don't want to be criticized, so I'm just going to get so good at seeing all the details so that no one can criticize me. And then maybe you leave that job and you go to like a healthy job, and your boss comes to sit down with you and be like, hey, I want to talk to you. And you're immediate like, oh. But something's going to happen in me. And so I, I, have I done the things that I've needed to do? Have I like checked the boxes? Has I been good enough about managing the world around you? Attachment science is showing us that people with anxious attachment are quicker to pick up on facial expressions and emotional cues than other kinds of attachment styles. Which totally makes sense. You've learned skills, you've learned tools, you've learned techniques for managing that fear of loss around you, and you're more highly attuned to it than those around you. You get good at doing that, about holding that tension, so we hold that tension for a long time and constantly apply those skills of managing anxiety. So when anxiety emerges, you use those skills, right? You work hard to avoid criticism. If you're a kid who grew up in an anxious environment, maybe you get bigger to be seen. You get funnier because you want attention, so you're going to fight for attention by your personality. If you grew up in an anxious religious environment, maybe the way that you manage spiritual anxiety is you're like, I'm going to get up earlier, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to share my faith, I'm going to do all the things that are good and right and necessary, but I'm going to do that in order to secure my relationship, my connection to God. We learn this way of living, this way of adjusting, getting funnier, being a better friend, being better at our management of anxiety. We grip the balloon tighter and tighter to make sure that it never floats away. But there's a real cost to living that way. I think my first and only time that I had a panic attack was in 2020. It's a global pandemic. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> In that pandemic, Tori and I had been a part of a small business. Uh, my wife and I had been part of a small business enterprise, and we had to close it, which was really sad. She was furloughed from her job that she really loved, so that was really heartbreaking. Here, we were engaging in some pretty serious conflict around uh, how do you handle a global pandemic. I was writing a dissertation for my doctorate program, and I, had a, uh, I was supposed to be writing a book manuscript 
and I just kept telling the publishers that I would get it done later. And I had been managing all of those things pretty well, um, I think. And then one day Tori and I got in. <laughs> one day Tori and I got in just like a little, like a fight, like a normal fight, you know, just like you, things that happen when you're married and you get in a, in a, in a tiff. And I remember, I remember being in the conflict. I don't remember what the conflict was about. I think it had to do with like who's done dishes recently or something. I don't know. And all of a sudden, uh, my hands felt like tinging. Like I couldn't, there was like a numbing that was coming to my hands and my body started to sweat and be chilly at the same time. And my breath caught and I couldn't focus and I had to just go lay down. And I was there like in that state for, I don't know, I can't really remember. Sometimes the weight of trying to anxiously manage something and control something just crushes us. When you try to place all of that burden on yourself, it often becomes too much to bear. And to be honest with you, a crushing weight of anxiety is in many ways the best outcome. Because a panic attack, for me, what it did is it forced me to stop moving. Like, I wasn't able to continue working, and I had to make adjustments, and we had to figure out a new life plan because I couldn't do that again. But it's not the only outcome of what anxiety can do to us. There is a, a, a shutdown that can happen in us when anxiety works its way in us, but there's also another option on the table when anxiety begins to work its way in us. We can grasp for more control. And we can actually begin to turn our need for control against those around us. I think the thing that's most fascinating about the story with Jairus is that the thing that stops him is someone else. And how easy would it be for him to blame her for his daughter's death? I think I would. So easy when you are seeing the world through a fear of loss to all of a sudden begin to see other people's as a threat in that scenario. So having a conversation with friends this week. I was like joking about it. We were talking about how like when you're in a work environment and someone else gets a compliment, how sometimes there can be like a, whoa, what, what about me? Like she's cool, but like, Like, you know the feeling. Like, and that's a much smaller example, but there is this sense of anxiety at work in us that turns us against those people around us as though them getting a compliment or her being healed means there is less for us. That somehow we're going to be at a loss because someone else was at a gain, that there is not enough for both of us. So just as much as anxiety can crush us, it can also turn us against others. Theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, it's a mouthful, has this really beautiful quote where he suggests that the root of sin is impatience. Which I think is a fascinating idea. I think you could substitute impatience for the word anxiety. And I'm going to read you this quote. He says this, God intended humans to have all good. All good. 
That's God's intentions. That's God's working. That's God's motivation. God intends for humans to have all good, but in God's time. And therefore, all disobedience, all sin, consists essentially in breaking out of time. Patience is the basic constituent of Christianity, the power to wait, not to force the issue, not to force the issue by playing the hero or the titan, but to wait. It's a challenging idea that sin is at its core impatience or this need to break out of time, to seize control, to rush what God is doing, to rush what's happening in the people around you, to control the people around you in order to get the thing that you want, the thing that you might need. Now, the text does not say that Jairus does this, which I think is important, but it does says, say that he waits. And maybe the most heartbreaking moment of this text we get comes when he is in his waiting. In verse 35, the text says this, while Jesus was still speaking with the woman that he healed, a messenger comes from the synagogue leader's house saying to Jairus, your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher any longer? Anxiety can crush us. Anxiety can turn us against those around us. And anxiety can speak a word of rejection that just destroys us. Because if you try long enough and you do not receive the thing that you need, what else are you supposed to believe about yourself than that you are unwanted, that you are a bother to the teacher, an annoyance to the teacher? Like a child who wants attention but doesn't get it, eventually something in us decides that it is us. Why bother the teacher? Why annoy Jesus? He's got better things to do. I feel like you can just hear the, the message and the way that would reverberate inside of Jairus' head after his daughter has died. Anxiety has a way of isolating us, turning us not only against other people, but like turning us against ourselves. What happens next in the story? Jairus hears these words. We don't know what's happening inside of Jairus' head. We can just imagine. And as this is going on, and as Jairus hears these words in verse 36, we get this moment where the text says this, but Jesus overheard. Carrying a fear of loss can make us feel isolated. I think this is especially true when it comes to our connection to God. Because anxiety in a spiritual sense, what it often does is it shows up in ways that, that feel like we're losing connection with God. And if we don't work hard enough or control that situation or manage that situation enough, that we will lose our connection to God. That we'll lose closeness, that God won't be there, that God won't be with us in it, that we will be alone. That we will be a bother. 
can only imagine that that's what Jairus is feeling in this moment. But where is Jesus when Jairus hears these words? He is himself close enough to hear. Yes, Jesus turned to address this woman. He always has space, but he never left Jairus' side. The Bible loves to tell stories like this, where anxiety seizes a moment and makes us feel so isolated and alone. You think about the disciples when they are on the boat and they begin to worry about what's going to happen to them. And where is Jesus the entire time? Oh, just in the boat. When the women who are worried about the resurrection, they're worried about the crucifixion of Jesus and they go to the garden, which we'll celebrate on Easter, where is Jesus when they go there? He's literally having a conversation with them. Anxiety makes us feel alone because it places on us the weight of connection. It says that you must control it and you must be good enough for it and you must do the right things in order to secure this relationship. But the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 would say this, who can separate us from Christ's love? Would we be separated by trouble, by anxiety, by distress, by harassment, by famine, by nakedness or danger or the sword? No, I am convinced of this, that nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord, not death or life or angels or rulers, nor present things or future things, nor powers or heights or depths or anything that is created. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, not even yourself. Yes, Jesus will pause to be attentive to the bleeding woman, and we'll look at her story next week, and that is deeply challenging for those of us who feel anxiety. But it does not mean that Jesus has left. It means that there is enough for both. And it means that Jesus is always close enough to hear. And the question is not, is God close? The question is, do we trust that God is close? Verse 36, after Jesus overhears the words Jesus said to the synagogue leader, do not be afraid. Just keep trusting. This moment is not a denial of Jairus' fear. He's not trying to tell him to shove it down and to hide it away. Of course Jairus is afraid. His daughter has just died. Instead, I think this moment is like a parent who comes to a child who's afraid of the dark and says, it's okay. You can rest. I am here so you can rest. Trust is hard, though, especially for those of us who are wrestling with anxiety. Trust is hard when anxiety hits because trust is the opposite of control, kind of like rest. Everything in us wants to grip the balloon 
tighter and tighter to not let go. And you cannot trust when you grip the balloon. You cannot rest when your knuckles are white from the tension. I think this is why the Bible most often and most profoundly connects the act of trust to the act of rest. All throughout the Bible, when the people of God are asked to trust, it often comes in the context of being asked to rest in God. One of my favorite Old Testament stories comes in Exodus 33. And this is a story where Moses is leading the people of Israel through the wilderness, right? So you get the long story of Moses with the people, leading them through. And Moses is weary of this work, to say the least. In verse 12 through 13, Moses comes to God and says, Look, you have been telling me, lead these people forward. But you have not told me who you will send with me. Yet you have assured me that I will know your name and think highly of you. Now, if you do think highly of me, God, show me your ways so that I may know you and so that you may really approve of me. So Moses experiences the anxiety and the stress and the weight that would be so intense leading a people in a difficult moment in this unknown. And he brings that to God in this sassy prayer. And then how does God respond? It's my favorite moment. In verse 14, God says this to Moses. He answers none of his questions. And he says this instead, I will go with you. And I will give you rest. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. It is okay, Moses. I am here. You can sleep. Rest like trust is hard to do when we are anxious in trying to hold control. In rest, we don't know what will happen. We don't know if things will be taken care of. We don't know if the world will continue. We don't know if our bills will be paid. There's so many unknowns when we rest. We don't even know where we go when we sleep. It's all trust. It's very spooky. (laughs) To rest, you must let go the balloon string and trust. When Jesus tells Jairus to trust, he is inviting Jairus to rest in him. And I think that's why this story ends the way that it does. It's a fascinating conclusion, very poetic. Jesus enters into Jairus' home and everyone is weeping and lamenting because this woman, this young girl has died. And Jesus enters in and he says she's only sleeping. Huh. What are you doing, Jesus? She's only sleeping. Jesus then takes her hand and says, Talitha kume, which is Arabic for sweet girl, it's time to get up. Monsieur, the invitation for us, just like it is for Jairus, is to find our rest in God. 
to trust that he is present. Then the strange anxiety and control that God is close enough to hear. That he is with. The writer of Hebrews provides this really beautiful summary. And this is where we'll begin to close. It just wraps up all the things that we've said. In Hebrews 4, the writer says this to the people of God. See, there is a rest for us. There is a rest for you. Therefore, let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one fall by following the same example of disobedience. That kind of impatience, that kind of anxiety at the core of us that can make us break out of rest. No, 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 rest. And if it's hard to rest, do this. Hold this confession. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is Jesus, God's Son. This is one who can sympathize with our weakness. One who is tempted in every way, just like we are, but was without sin. So let us draw near the throne with confidence, because we will receive mercy and find grace. Monsieur, it is safe to rest. So today we are invited to trust in Jesus, not a God who is annoyed with us, not a God who is bothered with us, not a God who is too far to hear, but one who is close. We are invited to let go of our striving and our impatience and our seizing of control to hear the voice that says, I am with you you can rest. And that is true for us even when the stories do not feel as poetic as this one. Because many of our stories do not feel as poetic as Jairus's. Where it ends in the waking. But the good news of this story is bigger than what happens for this daughter because in this story we see the pearl, the hope of all truth in Jesus that in the resurrection, well, all things are only sleeping. Let's pray. Jesus, today we, we find our rest. You have made way and made possible a new rest for us. It's hard to hold, it's hard to take because everything in us wants to hold that balloon string really tight to grip control of the world around us. And so as we hear the story today and as we see this encounter with you and Jairus, would we know that you are safe, that you are close, that you are near? And that with you we are safe to rest. safe to trust. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.